The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Today is November 7th, 2019, and on behalf of the director and staff of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Dr. Brooks E. Kleber Memorial Lecture Series. Tonight is the fourth and final lecture of the 2019 Kleber series, and the speaker's featured books, as you saw, uh, are out back of the, uh, the lecture room here. We encourage you to purchase a copy as long as they last for the book signing after the lecture. All proceeds from the book sales go to the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, in their efforts to support everything we do here at the Army Heritage and Education Center. We'll start up the 2020 Kleber Memorial Lecture Series in February with our very own Dr. Michael Lynch speaking about his new book. So hopefully we'll see you in February again. Now tonight's lecture honors the memory of Dr. Brooks Kleber, former Deputy Chief Historian of the Office of the Chief of Military History. I'm gonna take just a few moments, some of you have heard this story before, but I'm gonna read the brief history of Dr. Kleber to remember his mentorship and leadership as the Army's history program evolved into what we have today. Brooks Kleber was a native of Trenton, New Jersey, but graduated from Dickinson College in, two, or in uh, 1940. He entered the Army in August 1941, uh, went to officer candidate school, and was assigned to the 90th Infantry Division. He and his unit arrived in Normandy on D-Day plus five, and he earned the Bronze Star for gallantry in action. He was captured by the Germans on June 26, 1944, and remained a guest of the German army until the end of the war. <laughs> in 1945, as the Allies closed in, the German army began to move POWs uh, from, one, uh, from the more vulnerable camps. Brooks Kleber was ordered to make one of these moves, and when he went, he took with him two books in addition to his allowed personal effects. A History of Colonial America and the Common People, 1746 to 1938. It says a great deal about the man that he treasured those books enough to carry them with him throughout the remainder of the war until he was liberated by American troops in 1945. After being honorably discharged from the Army in 1945 and returning to civilian life, he entered the University of Pennsylvania where he completed his master's and his doctorate. While pursuing his doctorate, he was hired in 1950 as the historian for the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. In 1963, when the Chemical Corps was dissolved, he became the chief historian for the Continental Army Command at Fort Story, Virginia. In 1973, he became the chief historian for the US, training, U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command at Fort Story. And in 1980, he was appointed the deputy chief historian uh, for the U.S. Army, where he remained until his retirement in 1987. Dr. Kleber was active in the U.S. Army Reserve from his discharge in 1945 until his retirement in 1987, attaining the rank of colonel. Near the end of his career, Dr. Kleber presented the books he carried as a POW in Europe to the U.S. Army Military History Institute. We are pleased and humbled to preserve both of those books and the story of the sacrifice they represent. Those books are on display in a special case in our research room if you ever have the opportunity uh, to go see them. So tonight, we honor Brooks Kleber memory by presenting the next in our series of his memorial lectures. And with that, I'm honored to present to you our speaker for this evening. Mr. Peter Stark is a freelance writer and longtime correspondent for The New Yorker, The Smithsonian, and The Outside Magazines. His previous published works include New York Times best-selling book, Astoria, John Jacob Astor, and, the Thomas, Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson's Lost Pacific Empire, which was a finalist for Penn USA Literary Award. He also wrote The Travel Guide, The Last Empty Places, A Past and Present Journey Through the Blank Spots on the American Map. Mr. Stark earned his BA in anthropology and English at Dartmouth College and his master's in journalism from the University of Wisconsin. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me give a big A heck welcome to Mr. Peter Stark. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Carl, and thank you all for coming, you know, on this on this rainy 
cold night, for certainly in early November, and I'm, I'm honored to be, I guess, the last speaker of 2019. And thanks to um, Dr. Brooks Cleaver for, for making this whole Army history project come alive, and, and the, the staff of here at, at AHEC, um, a number of whom I've just met, and I'm deeply impressed with this, this place and the staff. I've never been here before. And I'm really eager to spend some time exploring what's right here. Um, and they, uh, I have to say that there are some members of the staff here that know a good deal more about many aspects of this subject than I do. So I'm delighted to meet them for, uh, to, so I can pick their brains in the, in the future. And along those lines, let me just do a, a kind of audience survey so I can, I can see where we are in terms of background. Um, who here is either from Pennsylvania or has lived here a number of years? Raise your hands. OK, that's helpful. A lot of you. OK, who here is either from western Pennsylvania or has lived there for a number of years? OK. All right, well, this gives me a little bit of sense of uh, who, how much people know the geography and, um, and perhaps uh, some of this history. So, um, well, at the risk of, uh, of speaking blasphemy of our founding father, let me just start with this passage from the beginning of my book. So this book, it's, it's titled uh, Young Washington, and it's, it's not really about the older George Washington. It's, a, it's about a, a much younger version, um, George Washington in his 20s. And I, I'd like to point out that George Washington um, at 21 was a very different George Washington from the one most of us know and, you know, and that's out there in the American consciousness. And this is not the Washington of the cherry tree bedtime story. Rather, this young Washington is ambitious, temperamental, vain, thin-skinned, petulant, awkward, demanding, stubborn, annoying, hasty, and passionate. This Washington has not yet learned to cultivate his image or contain his emotions. Here, instead, is a raw young man struggling toward maturity and in love with a close friend's wife. This is the Washington of emotional neediness, personal ambition, and mistakes, many mistakes. So in, you know, as, it, We've we've really cultivated this image of this of this uh, this person. I mean, not not even really a person. As this, we've cultivated an image of a great leader in George Washington, and it's as if he it's as if he sort of sprang out of the ether as a great leader. You know, like immaculately conceived, fully formed, born flawless, a kind of man god to guide our nation through. Its, its founding and its early years. But I think as most of us know, um, most here know, is that George Washington didn't become commander in chief of the Continental Army until he was 43. And before that, he had a very different career. Before he was a great leader, he was really not such a great leader. So he had a long and difficult learning curve. He really struggled. At times, he failed. But, but he did, he learned from his mistakes. And I, you know, that's where I find George Washington truly inspirational, that, that this, this, this sort of flawed, more uh, vulnerable George Washington is, it, it's, uh, he, I think he's more inspiring, he's more human, he's more accessible. And um, that given where he started, that he did become the great leader that he did, um, is all the more remarkable and inspiring. So this, this book, um, Young Washington, focuses us on, his, on George Washington's years between the age of 21 and 26. 
Um, I did realize not so long ago that he spent five years living those years, and I spent four years researching and writing about them. So we're, we're almost on a par in terms of time invested. Um, so, uh, but before I started this research, I didn't really know more about George Washington than, than most people. Um, I'm not a presidential biographer. Rather, I come at the story from the, the wilderness and the adventure side of things. Um, I've written about adventure and exploration for many years, um, and I used to do the kind of crazy adventure and exploration myself and, until I decided a guy could kind of get killed doing that, so I started writing about other people doing it. So a, a few years ago, well, actually 10 or 12 years ago, I was doing research for a book I call it, that Carl referred to it as called The Last Empty Places. I call it my blank spots book. And in it, I profiled some of the really unpopulated areas of the country. Um, I talked to a satellite geographer, and he said, well, get the nighttime image of the US from you know, like Landsat 7, and look at that nighttime image and see where the lights are, and then you go where they're not. And one of the places, which I don't think will surprise anybody in this room, that I ended up going was Western Pennsylvania, which is you know, remarkably unpopulated for given its proximity to the East Coast, and it's very mountainous and forested. Of course, not everywhere. There's Pittsburgh, but there's big, big, very unpopulated areas out there. And so I went out there to do uh, research, and I was hiking around in the woods and exploring this and that and various museums, and I kept stumbling across this young guy in his early 20s who was having all sorts of struggles out there. And it turned out to be young George Washington. And you know, this is a George Washington I had really never heard about. You know, here's a guy who at age 22, by, you know, by some measures, inadvertently set off the French and Indian War. And you know, that takes some doing for a 22-year-old. It's not every 22-year-old that has that, you know, that capability. So, but here was this really interesting guy. And, I've been, um, I've written about, uh, and been in some of those situations myself, I've written about people in extreme situations in the wilderness for, for most of my career. And um, I'm really interested in how they respond to those extreme situations. And here was a guy, this young George Washington, that was, who was in these, in really extreme situations in the wilderness. And so I think that's what I can say I bring to this book. That's the original research I really bring to this book, is that I, I understand. I know what it feels like to paddle a canoe down an ice-clogged river or to fall through the ice of a lake or to run through a snowy woods on a sub-zero night seeing by starlight or by moonlight. And these are all experiences that George Washington had in this phase of his life. And so I really wanted to try to bring those alive as much as I could, because I don't think people appreciate what, what he went through, these extraordinary experiences. And I tried to make them as vivid as possible, and, but staying within as closely as I can to the bounds of historical accuracy. So um, I guess I could begin this sort of arc of his life in that, in that era is by saying that we don't really think of George Washington as an ambitious guy. But he was extremely ambitious. And it, it becomes notable when he's in his mid-teens. And I, it's, it's helpful to know, um, I find, to kind of put that in context, is that when you look at his family history, the Washingtons, first in England, and then in, in, on this continent, North America, for several centuries, the male Washingtons had been striving to get to the uppermost reaches of the aristocracy, first in England and then here, and, but with remarkable consistency, they had not made it. And what tended to happen is these male Washingtons would marry a very wealthy widow, a landed widow. And that would kind of boost them up in the hierarchy. And then they'd have like 18 kids, and all the wealth would sort of disperse, and they'd start lower down in the ranks. And that cycle 
It actually happened several times over. And when you think of it, George, when he finally did get married to Martha, married the wealthiest widow in Virginia, Martha, who had 17,000 acres of land and some hundred slaves or more. And so he was, you know, that was actually part of the family pattern. George's um, was fourth generation. His great-grandfather, John, I call him John the Sailor, arrived in Virginia in the, in the mid-1600s. And he, John the Sailor, the Washington family got on the wrong side of the English Civil War. So young John the Sailor essentially bailed out for, uh, went to sea to try to make a better life. And he got involved with a trading voyage coming to Virginia that was going to um, trade for a cargo of tobacco and take it back to, to England. And the ship that George the Sailor was involved with got caught in a winter storm on the Potomac River. And it became encrusted with ice in this winter storm, and it sank. And all this extremely valuable cargo of tobacco was ruined. And the, at that point, the captain of the, of the vessel said to John the sailor, young Washington, well, you know, you owe a bunch of money for this cargo. And you know, you're, it's your responsibility, too. And apparently, John the sailor did not have any recourse or money. Um, and so the case ended up before a, a, a magistrate in Virginia, who was a, um, the magistrate was a planter named Pope. And as it turned out, um, Magistrate Pope took a shine to young John the Sailor Washington. And Magistrate Pope introduced John the Sailor to his daughter. And John the Sailor and, and the Pope daughter got married. And the old man gave them 700 acres of land. So that was the first Washington to come to, the, to this continent. And here it is, the same, you know, following the same pattern. So by the time George came along, the fourth generation, the Washingtons are fourth generation. They're they're Virginia planters, but they're not that that great, you know, uppermost planter with the you know the, they call them the great houses, and you know or the marble foyers where they have the balls and the thousands of acres and the hundreds of slaves. They weren't like that. They were kind of a middling level of planter. And when George was 11, his, his father, Gus, died. And George, or Gus left most of his land holdings to George's older half-brothers. He had two older half-brothers. And the other thing that distinguished those older half-brothers is that Gus, because he was alive and had some funds, sent, had sent them to England to school, to boarding school. And so they had become these polished, you know, semi-British gentlemen with a good education. Well, George missed out on all that because Gus died. And so George did not have a formal education to speak of. He had some, but uh, some education. I, you know, I think of it about as a seventh or eighth grade education. Um, and so because Gus left most of his lands to the older brothers, George needed a way to make a living. And at first, his older brother, Lawrence, who was quite a glamorous guy, had, and had served alongside the British Royal Navy in an in a obscure war in the Caribbean. Um, the older brother, Lawrence, suggested to young George, who's at this point 14, that he join the Royal Navy or he become a, a, a sailor, and that he go to sea. And George's mother, Mary Ball Washington, um, wrote to her brother in London and said, what do you think about George going to sea? And, the, and his, uh, so George's uncle, Mary's brother, writes back and says, don't let him do it. You know, they'll use him. They'll, they'll whip him. They'll staple him like a dog, like a slave. And so George's mom says, no, you're not going to sea, which you could say is a good thing for us because had George gone to sea, things might have turned out very differently here on, on land on this, on this continent. So. Um, I do say that, that it's, it's, it's one of these kind of key times of his life that, or I almost think of them as moments, but that I think that if George, if George's dad had not died when George was so young, and if George's older brother, Lawrence, had not died 
when George was still, I probably, I think in his late teens. And if George had had a better relationship with his mom, they were, it was a very awkward and kind of semi-estranged relationship. I think George, the young George, would have had a much more anchored place in the world. He would have felt much more anchored. Because as it was, he had this driving ambition. And that, I, you know, I think his father could have told him, well, you know, this is who we are. It had given him more of a sense of place. So when George denied the chance to go to sea, at age 14, picked up his father's old surveying instruments. And he more or less taught himself to survey. And this is another thing that, that marks the, George Washington, starting when he's young and going throughout the rest of his life. He was very good at teaching himself. And it, he, it, he underwent a lot of self-education. I mean, he was even, he read a lot of military manuals, for, for instance, um, and agricultural manuals. And, but this, this um, trend shows up very young when he teaches himself to survey. At age 16, he was invited to join a big a surveying party of the Fairfax family um, to go out and survey in the westernmost parts of Virginia, or the, Virginia claimed it all, went all the way to the island of California. So the westernmost parts are out there theoretically, but the parts over the mountain. And this, was, this surveying party was um, sent by the Fairfax family. And as I think many of you know, most of you know, that the, you know, that's such a big name. There's Fairfax County, and there's Fairfax, Virginia. Um, the, so the Fairfaxes were true British peers. And about a century earlier, that the, the king of England had given the Fairfaxes five million acres of Virginia land. And of course, you know, we talk about our half-acre lawns. So I did the math on this one. And five million acres is a lawn 90 miles by 90 miles. So that's how much land the Fairfax family held in Virginia. And they were beginning to sell it off at this, at this point. This is in the, in the late 1740s. And George, so they were sending a survey party out there. George's older half-brother, Lawrence, the guy who he really revered, had just had married into the Fairfax family. So George had a connection with the Fairfax family. They invited him to join this party of surveyors. So at age 16, George went off with this survey party. The odd thing is and this, that George initially was really kind of taken aback by the frontier, by life on the frontier, that um, it, it was the crudeness of it that really kind of unnerved him. He complained about bedbugs in the blankets. He complained about smoke in the tents. He complained, shockingly, that these settlers ate on tables that did not have linen tablecloths on them. <laughs> and they didn't, weren't using silver, they were using big knives. So uh, he was, it really kind of threw this young Virginia uh, plantation guy for a loop. But there was, uh, there was something that clearly really appealed to him about that, that life on the, on the edge of the wilderness, that outdoor life, that sort of um, uh, frontier life. So here's a passage that addresses this period when he's a 16-year-old on the, on the frontier, kind of the edge of the wilderness with a surveying party. Away from the few small settlements and inns, the outdoor life had its own compensations. There was an excitement to it, an adrenaline edge, a raw sense of having to fend for yourself. You could take satisfaction in simple things, learning how to build a fire in deep woods, how to cook simple food in a single pot or with a handheld spit over an open flame, how to erect a tent in cold rain, how to attain a body position best suited to sleep on hard ground, wrapped in bearskin or blanket. Unlike the Tidewater region, with its clean sheets and bountiful tables provided by liveried servants and field slaves, one constantly had to tend to one's own most basic human needs, food, shelter, and warmth. 
while traversing landscapes that could transform, transform from benign and embracing to hostile and forbidding, depending on terrain and weather, from clambering over rotted logs and crawling through underbrush in blustering sleet, to strolling through grassy meadows under fleecy white clouds drifting past in a blue sky. Social status did not matter. You had to figure it out, work together, acquire confidence and self-sufficiency, sharply engage in the here and the now. You had to pay attention in the wilds to stay alive. By age 18, George was making enough money as a freelance surveyor that he could buy his own plots of land, which he did in the Shenandoah Valley. He was doing pretty well for an 18-year-old, but he still had this driving ambition, and he still wanted to rise up in the Virginia aristocracy. And one way to do that was to become an officer in the military. So at age 21, this was shortly after Lawrence, his older brother Lawrence, died of, of tuberculosis, George went to the British governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, and, uh, and signed up to be a, a part-time uh, young officer, a military officer, um, sort of a, like, a little bit like a National Guard status. He, he, he was not on duty all the time. And partly on the strength of George's surveying experience on the frontier and on George's very eagerness to volunteer, Governor Dinwiddie chose young George, 21-year-old George, to undertake a, a really difficult and dangerous wilderness mission. And that was to deliver a message from Governor Dinwiddie to the French commandant of a French fort deep in the Ohio wilderness. Now, as many of you know that when we talk about the Ohio wilderness, we're not talking about the state of Ohio, that it's really, we're talking about the Ohio Valley River drainage. So it's a huge area. It's, it's uh, what's now Il uh, Ohio, Indiana, good part of Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois. It's an area, it's a region almost the size of France. So to the Europeans, you know, this was a, a vast wilderness. Of course, it was not to Indian tribes who had been living there and hunting there for literally thousands of years. But at this point, there was tension growing between the British and the French over who had possession of the Ohio wilderness. And the message that Governor Dinwiddie was sending to the French, to the French commandant, in essence said, stay out. All these lands belong to King George. So we, we all know that there's been this, you know, maybe 700 years of warfare between France and England on the continent. Um, this is one of the, this is now in the early 1750s, and they've been enjoying these two empires have been enjoying a few years of, of peace in Europe. But tensions are beginning to grow in, the, in, the, in North America over this issue of the Ohio Valley. And as I don't, when I speak to Western audiences, I kind of have to paint out the map of the lay of the land here. I don't think I have to for you all. But the, uh, of course, the British colonies are on the, on the eastern seaboard, where, where we are now. And, um, and so the British are along really that strip of coast. The French are up in Canada. That's where their colonies are. And in between those two colonial empires, you have that huge mass of the Ohio Valley. So George Washington left Virginia in October of 1753, and he, he was traveling on horseback into the wilderness, and he had a wilderness guide, a guy named Christopher Gist, really interesting guy, who really knew what he was doing in the, in the wilderness. 
And they, they, were, they had a small party on horseback. They crossed over the Appalachian Mountains. And as they did, they got slammed by winter storms. They were actually fall storms, late October, early November. And you know, it was snowing, a lot of snow. They were you know, camping out in the snow. This is, you know, anybody who's camped out in the snow knows it's, like a, it's not an easy thing. And you know, if you've been down in Tidewater, living the lifestyle down there, it's a, a whole different world. And um, they, it takes weeks. And they go over the mountains, and, it's, and the, the winter and the weather gets more and more severe as they get over the mountains. And they get way back into the, into the wilderness. And they get to a little French post, and they arrive. And um, George goes, you know, steps forward, and they're greeted by a young French officer. And George you know, tries to give him this letter from message from Governor Dinwiddie. And the young French guy says, oh, you know, you're at the wrong post. You got another week's ride that way. And so off they go again, riding for another week. And it's, it's, it's snowing and icing up. And they ride on through this swampy terrain. And they end up up, up near um, Lake Erie. Um, and the French, there's a larger French fort there. And there they are greeted by a very elderly, or not, he's not that elderly, but a very distinguished, somewhat older gentleman who's a, a, a um, professional French military officer and, um, and uh, has aristocratic background. And he receives George and his party with very formal hospitality, you know, out there in the wilderness. And I always, you know, like to think that here they are, and I'm sure they were being served the, you know, the best meats they had. And they had, they definitely had French wine that's, you know, brought into the wilderness by canoe. And, you know, of course, it's dinner by candlelight because there is no other light that they have. And so they have, you know, these really wonderful hospitality. And um, the French commandant takes the letter from Governor Dinwiddie, and he eventually goes to another room, and he reads it. And eventually, he, he pens a response, and he gives it back to George. And George is under orders from Governor Dinwiddie to bring the French response back as soon as possible, you know, with all possible haste, as I believe the wording is. And so George is very eager to perform this mission with, you know, all his, you know, as, as perfectly as he can. And so he gets out of that French fort as fast as he can. And, and they first they go by canoe for a while. And then they regain their horses. And then they start riding. But as they're riding, the snow gets deeper and deeper. And it gets colder and colder. And this is, you know, you're up near Lake Erie. And you get what up there they, they call the lake effect, where you get huge snows coming off the lake. And they're very deep. And so now these guys are caught, George and his little party are caught on these snows. And the horses start weakening. And they, horses can't paw through the snow to get to the, the forage underneath. And the, they can't, they're having trouble breaking through the ice on the streams to drink water. And so the horses are weakening. And at this point, George says to this very uh, experienced wilderness guy, Christopher Gist, well, let's just leave the horses and walk. And you know, when you read Christopher Gist's journals, which they both kept journals of this expedition, you read Christopher Gist's journals, and you can see Christopher just kind of Gist kind of rolling his eyes between the lines. And it's like, I tried to tell the young gentleman <laughs> you know, that about it, it is, that it's difficult to walk because I didn't think Virginia gentlemen walked, and of course Virginia gentlemen don't walk; they they ride horses. Which and George was a great rider. There was a, no doubt about that. Great rider hadn't done a lot of wilderness walking, but he he essentially convinced. Christopher Gist, the wilderness guide, to leave the horses, despite Gist's warnings not to. And of course, as Gist predicted, George becomes extremely foot sore after a while and very tired. And they're following these Indian paths. And these paths are winding all over the wilderness. And George, you know, who knows some surveying and has a compass, says, well, why are we following these windy Indian paths? Why don't we just like take a compass bearing and cut through the wilderness, you know, the forest, take a shortcut? And you know, again, you read the journals, and Christopher Gist is kind of rolling his eyes in between the lines, like, you know, this is not such a great idea. And but Washington pushes it anyway, and 
So they start going cross country, not on trails, but through the woods, these snowy woods. And the result of this is they end up thinking that they're being trailed by Indians through the snow, and they end up running more or less for 40 hours straight through the woods. And this, you know, sub-zero, you know, around freezing uh, temperature, or around zero, probably well below freezing temperatures. And eventually, you know, it's like running back-to-back -back marathons. They get to um, the river we now know as the Allegheny, and they they think that Allegheny is because it's so cold, the Allegheny will be frozen, and they can and they can walk across and you know make their escape. Well, the Allegheny is not frozen. The edges are frozen, but the the center of the river is still running open, and there are these big ice flows running down the river. Christopher Gis, you know, says, well, our, our best hope is to make a raft. But as it turns out, they left behind the horses, and with the horses, they left behind the best equipment, so the only thing they have to make a raft is this one small, dull hatchet. And they spend all day making a raft out of logs. And finally, as dusk arrives and the sun goes down, they um, manage to launch their raft. And so this next passage is about that. Can everybody hear all right? Am I going, I, I can't tell if I'm going in or out or just should stay here. They pushed out into the broad Allegheny in the twilight. The sudden power of the current seized the raft, jerking it downstream. Thick flows of ice swirling in the river pressed around them. The raft wedged between moving flows. It jostled and bumped, its logs driven underwater by the force of the current and floating ice, threatening to capsize. We expected every moment our raft to sink and ourselves to perish, Washington recorded in his journal. Determined to save himself and Gist in the important mission, Washington shoved his pole to the river bottom and leaned on it with all his powerful six-foot-plus frame to steady the raft. The useful strength and fine horsemanship that had distinguished him in the Virginia plantation country meant nothing here. The river's powerful current shoved the raft into the pole while Washington clung to it suddenly snapping the pole forward like the arm of a catapult. The force flung Washington into deep, swirling water. He surely emitted a reflexive gasp as he was immersed in a splash among the ice flows, arms reaching out. The human body can only survive a few minutes in water just above the freezing point before succumbing to hypothermia, dangerously low body temperatures. One reflexively hyperventilates, and the heart rate jumps as the frigid water chills sensors buried deep in the skin. The body preserves its vital functions by closing capillaries in fingers and limbs, sending blood to the core to warm brain, heart, and lungs. Fingers quickly stiffen, then arms and legs, responding only clumsily to commands. Thinking becomes confused as core temperature drops below 95 degrees and brain enzymes slow. At a core temperature of 86 degrees, the hypothermia victim in frigid water become, becomes unconscious and drowns. Or long before then, the current could sweep him downstream, pulling him beneath the flows, trapping him underwater, bumping along under the grinding ice, trying to surface for air, head hitting the underside of the flows, frantically seeking an opening, until finally his breath expires. This is where I say you've got to buy the book to figure out what comes next. <laughs> Although we do know he survived. And if not for Christopher Gist, he would not have survived. Um, he actually he gets back up. I won't tell you all the details, but they, they make it to an island in the middle of the, of the river, a snow-covered island. And I am sure uh, George Washington would have died there if Christopher Gist had not been with him. Because there is no way, 
if you've been in water that cold and you get out on a snowy island and you try to start a fire, you can't even bend your fingers. There's no way he would have started a fire. Christopher Gist, Washington records in his journal, freezes all his fingers and, and some of his toes, and he doesn't say so, but I'm sure it's because Christopher Gist was starting the fire to save them both. So that, to me, is one of these incidents where Washington really felt the power of nature and the power of cold and the power of winter in a way that just is overwhelming and overwhelming maybe from a guy from the, you know, the pretty genteel plantation country. And I think that he really actually harnessed that very thing many years later in the, when he was commander in chief during the revolution. When you think of crossing the Delaware, the Battle of Trenton, these times when he used winter to his advantage. And I think he understood how devastating it could be and how devastating it could be to the British and how people just didn't fight in the winter. But he understood how to take advantage of that. And I think, I think that started right at this moment. So eventually, um, Christopher Gist and, and Washington make it back to uh, or Washington makes it back to Williamsburg and, and goes to the governor's palace, which still stands and beautifully restored. And um, he hands over the letter from the French commandant to Governor Dinwiddie. And Governor Dinwiddie is a 60-year-old Scottish merchant. And you know he's, the portraits, there's some beautiful portraits of him. He's the, like, the exact image that you can imagine. You know, the big belly, the brass buttons, the vest, the, the, the white wig. And he's, uh, you know, the big jowls. And so Washington, young Washington, hands him this, this letter from the French commandant, this message. And the um, uh, governor, Dinwiddie, opens it and reads it. And essentially, the letters from the French commandant says very politely and formally, you know, our, our empires have been at peace for some time, and I would like to preserve that peace. But... As for your suggestion that we leave the Ohio wilderness, I don't think so. And of course, Governor Dinwiddie is outraged. George is outraged. And Governor Dinwiddie sends George back into the wilderness at the head of a small military party to deliver a firmer message to the French. You know, again, a, a handwritten message. And this is really where the real trouble begins. That Governor Dinwiddie cautions George, be cautious and don't be the aggressor. Well, George basically does just the opposite of that in his, in his eagerness. And that I think probably many of you know this story. I won't go into great detail. But George ends up ambushing a small party, a small French party, is camped down in a wood, wooded glen, like a little rocky canyon in the woods, uh, now known as Jumonville Glen. It's out near Uniontown. And um, George and his guys come creeping over the edge on a rainy dawn of this, of this little canyon, and they open fire on the French down below. And there's a lot of controversy about just what unfolded, but there, there actually have been some recently uncovered documents by David Preston, another guy who is a speaker here, that um, it's pretty clear from recent things uncovered that George fired the first shot in this, in this situation, even though he later claimed, well, the French did. Um, then what happened, so there were a lot of French wounded, some dead down there, and there were some Indians with George, and there was an Indian leader named the Half King. And these Indians went down to the Glen, and they, they scalped the dead guys, and they scalped some of the wounded. And the, uh, the Half King went up behind the French officer in charge, Ensign Jumonville, and who, it turned out, Ensign Jumonville was trying to deliver a diplomatic message to Governor Dinwiddie and had a message for, for Washington to take. But the half-king, the Indian leader with, with Washington's party, took his tomahawk and slammed it down 
on Ensign Jumonville's skull and pulled out his brains and squeezed them through his fingers. And then his, the other Indians scalped the French guys and cut off one guy's head and put it on a pole. And you know, George is saying, whoa, you know, what happened here? You know, all of a sudden, this whole thing kind of turned south. And you know, at this point, again, there's, you know, there's some controversy about what he should or shouldn't have done. But he, you know, a prudent military commander at that point, in my interpretation, would have paused and reconsidered where to go from here and consulted with Governor Dinwiddie. But in essence, George charged on ahead to try to get to this French fort deep in the wilderness. And um, he was hoping to get some cannon and, and raft them down the river and take this French fort. Well, he got partway there, and he heard that the French and their Indian allies were coming after him. And he realized he was now in trouble. So he turned around, and he backed up, and he built a fort. Many of you know about it and probably have seen it, Fort Necessity, which was this, this claptrap little thing. You know, It was 50 feet in diameter, which is half the size of this room, probably at best, and uh, you know, like the size of an average front lawn in a, in a bungalow. And he, uh, it was made with stockade uh, posts. And he actually, as he built this thing, he wrote a letter to Governor Dinwiddie. You know, this is George, who's feeling, he's feeling pretty cocky because he thinks he's routed the French in this, in this incident at Jumonville Glen. And, he, and he's written his brother. He said, well, I heard bullets whistle, and I found something charming in the sound. Or believe me, there's something charming in the sound. He's, he's, he's feeling like cocky. And he writes to Governor Dinwiddie, well, I've, I've built this, this fort that could withstand the attack of 500 men. Well, that theory was tested immediately, because here we have an expert on the man himself. Um, uh, the, the French. Uh, the brother of Ensign Jumonville led a force of about seven or 800 French soldiers and Indian warriors and attacked this little claptrap fort that George had made. And had, he had forces of around 200 guys. And they had dug these um, trenches around the fort. And George had sighted the fort in this marshy meadow. And these trenches were, it was raining. And these trenches were filling up with, with, with mud and water, and the French and Indians did not attack straight on the way George was expecting them to. Rather, they went running up to this wooded hill very close to the fort, um, which was poorly situated. And they just opened fire from the woods. And they slaughtered George's forces. And I, I think this is one of those other kind of key moments, these sort of transformative moments in, in George's young life when he you know, you can you can just picture the scene, and there are eyewitness descriptions of these guys they're, that they're lying in the mud and the blood. The trenches are filled with mud and blood. Read some of the eyewitness descriptions, and and there are these you know soldiers of George's lying there dead in the rain as it's getting dark, and you know George knows these guys. He's been he's been marching with them for some weeks at this point, and you know what does he feel at that moment? What what responsibility does he feel? for you know, bringing these guys into the situation, which was really not, not necessary. And so I think that's one of these moments where, where he really starts developing this, this kind of a greater sense of concern for others rather than for himself, rather than for his own career and his own advancement. He, he, there's this kind of sense of spreading empathy towards his, his men and his officers. And one of the things that's that, that I've, I, I find really kind of a small detail that I find but very significant in my mind is that when, when, when they were at this, just before the French and Indians attacked this little fort, that George and his forces were retreating to this little fort and they had some cannon with them, some small cannons, and they were going up this steep, rocky, difficult hill and they didn't have enough horses, and the men were weak. There wasn't enough food. And at that moment, George got, literally got down off his horse, which Virginia gentlemen just did not do. And he, 
he helped, walked along with the guys. He gave the, the horse over to these guys to, to carry the, help carry the baggage. And he may have even just you know, pushed, helped push everything along. And so here's a guy who, who was willing to kind of get down on that level with his men. And I think that's something he carried through um, in, into his much later life. And it, 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 um, I think it really helped his, his officers feel very close to him, that, that willingness to kind of get down on their level. But it's, this was an early, very early incident of that. So um, this, this battle of Fort Necessity was um, more or less what set off the French and Indian War. And um, the, uh, uh, George nevertheless is kept on as, a, as an officer. And um, one of the reasons, I'm, I'm skipping ahead, but one of the reasons was, was that he knew the wilderness and he'd also shown this real bravery. He was utterly fearless physically. And one of, the, one of the times he showed that was, I, I won't go into all the detail of the story, but Braddock's defeat, where um, General Braddock, with his big body of redcoats, goes marching, chopping his way, right, well, no, actually, this is Forbes Road, the, farther south from here, uh, right through the, the woods towards Fort Duquesne at the forks of the Ohio, now Pittsburgh, um, to, to attack the French fort. And General Braddock and his you know, 2,000 long column, 2,000 person long column, gets ambushed by the French and Indians. And George is a young aide-de-camp to General Braddock. And he's, he's almost literally the last officer standing. And he delivers messages up and down the line from General Braddock. And he, he survives this thing. And, and it's just so many people die and so many officers die. But George survives with like four bullet holes in his hat and his coat. And he writes his brother right after that, right after that battle. And he, he says that he can only explain it. He, that he says, the, 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 quote, the miraculous care of providence protected me beyond all human expectations. And I think that's another one of these moments where George starts seeing a role for himself that's greater than a role that's greater than just about himself. The, George ends up being posted uh, in charge of the Virginia Regiment. I'm sure many of you know this story. And his, his, uh, at age 23, this huge responsibility, he's in charge of 1,000 troops. His job is to guard the Virginia frontier against French and Indian attacks you know, coming over that front, over the, the mountains and attacking frontier settlers. And it's, it's really a, an impossible uh, task. And I, I compare it in some ways to today trying to, it would be like trying to seal the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, that you have these um, really rugged terrain and very skilled and, and knowledgeable indigenous fighters. And, you know, George built a post fort every 20 miles or so, and the, you know, the, the Indians just walked around the post and you know, went over the mountains and, 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 and raided the, the frontier settlers. George, um, you know, at the beginning, he was, he, of this posting, that initially he seemed largely focused on himself, his honor, his reputation, his personal pride, and he quit or threatened to quit at least seven times. I think it was closer to more like 10 or more, over too little pay, over jealousy toward higher ranking officers, over criticism in the newspapers. And one, one really huge issue for, for George at this, at this moment, at this time, was that he had a commission from an officer's commission from Governor Dinwiddie. So it was a Virginia colonial officer's commission. And he really, really wanted a British Royal Army Commission, a commission, an officer's commission from king, the king himself. And there was a, um, a guy who showed up one day who was a Captain Dagworthy, and the Captain Dagworthy was, uh, um, happened to have a, a uh, Royal Officer's Commission, and even though he was technically ranked lower than Colonel Washington, that he claimed that he was ranked higher than Colonel Washington because he had a British Royal Army Commission, and that was the protocol. 
it made, it drove Washington crazy. And he, um, on a number of occasions, left his wilderness post, which is at Fort Loudon in, in Win what's now Winchester, and he rode on these long journeys. One of them, he, he took a journey on horseback of 1,000 miles, round trip, to go from his, he left his wilderness post and he went up to Boston to call on Governor General Shirley to ask General Shirley to make him a, 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 a British Royal Army officer. Well, he didn't get that. And he, he asked repeatedly, he didn't get it. And that resentment, that, as we know, that carried through. It was something that stung him greatly, um, that he felt treated like a second-class citizen by the, by the British, by the British Royal Army. After that long journey, he got back, um, and after several of these long journeys, and, and the Indians had come over the, front, over the mountains, and they'd raided frontier settlers, and the frontier settlers were being scalped and slaughtered, and they were pleading with young George Washington, you know, please protect us. And Washington did not really, he, he, it was really difficult and frustrating because he, he didn't really have a means of, of protecting these people. And he, he really struggled with that. Um, that he, but he did in this, in this period, I mean, I think from those frontier settlers, that was another case where he developed a greater sense of empathy for those around him, you know, less focused on his own advancement, and, and, and really started feeling responsible for a much larger uh, group of people for a purpose greater than himself. And he, um, he also, in this period, he really learned, um, he really learned logistics, which helped him a lot in, in many later years. You know, you read his correspondence from that era, and I've read hundreds and hundreds of these, of his letters, um, and a lot of it is about, oh, we're gonna move 20, you know, barrels of, of salted beef from here to there, and we're sending 20 guys this way, and that's what, you know, it's just like, endless piles of these, of these letters. And he was a good administrator, very conscientious. And so he learned that, he learned these logistics, he learned to consult with his, his subordinate officers to take their advice, he learned that during this period. But it was also very stressful. And he, um, he really wrestled with desertions. So he was losing a lot of guys to desertions, he was very frustrated. And eventually, he ended up holding a court-martial of 24 guys, 22 or 24, and he, that the court-martial the, the, the court ended up convicting most of these guys to either like 1,500 lashes or um, execution by firing squad or by hanging. And George built a gallows 40 feet high in what's now Winchester. It was just a little frontier post then, 60 cabins or so. And, but there was the fort, and he, he built these gallows, 40 feet high. And I'm pretty sure they were higher than any building in Winchester and, and probably higher than the flagpole at the fort. And he hanged two guys. And one of them I think he probably knew. It was from his, his home county, a guy named Edwards, who was a good fiddler and a dancer. And yet George had him hanged. And so, you know, can you imagine that? He's like 24, 25 years old at this point, and, you know, you're hanging a guy you know. And it was, in my reading of this, I think George was under so much strain in, in, through this period and with this culminating with these hangings that his health literally broke, which it did. That within, within uh, he'd always wrestled with what they called the bloody flux then, we know as dysentery, you know, because it's from camp, poor camp sanitation. And it really acted up the bloody flux in this period, right, I mean, just days after these hangings, got worse and worse. He finally was so ill, he just left. And he went back to Mount Vernon, which he'd by then inherited from his older brother who had died. And he went back to Mount Vernon, and he stayed there. And he didn't come back. And he wrote, I'll read this last little passage, a letter to Colonel Stanwix, who was a Royal Army officer and who um, was kind of a mentor to George and who was up here, in, he was right, in fact, he might have been here in Carlisle. What, is, that, is that right? He might have been here. And George was down in Winchester and he wrote Colonel Stan, Stanwix, whom he admired and um, 
he wrote them from Mount Vernon, and this was after he'd been back at Mount Vernon for several months. My constitution, I believe, has received great injury, and as nothing can retrieve it but the greatest care and most circumspect conduct, as I now see no prospect of preferment in a military life, in other words, as I'm not going to get a royal army commission, and as I despair of rendering that immediate service which this colony may require of persons commanding their troops, I have some thoughts of quitting my command and retiring from all public business, leaving my post to be fulfilled by others more capable of the task and who may perhaps have their endeavors crowned with better success than mine has been. Now this is me talking. After four years in the wilderness and on the frontier, after helping to spark the French and Indian War and surviving Braddock's defeat and countless hours trying to build, train, and discipline the Virginia Regiment and protect frontier settlers, it sounded like he was finished and ready to retire to Mount Vernon. It sounded like the farewell address of George Washington, age 26. Already, he had lived a lot. So thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have about 10 minutes for questions and answers. Who would like to get us started here? Going once, <laughs> twice. Here we go. As you said in the beginning, uh, we had all these preconceived images of Washington and what he stood for. Um, what was the biggest thing that surprised you when reading all these journals about his nature? And do you think he was, a, I, I had read that he was a man that was not well liked. I don't think he was a very, you know, just likable, good guy to hang out with in, in just a hail fellow well met sense. I think he was tremendously respected. And there were a lot of things to like about him that, you know, and partly this, 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 Great conscientiousness, um, that and and eventually the sense of care that he was really very conscientious about trying to you know do the the right thing as he saw it, and and even though that was sometimes in conflict with his personal ambition, he was he was wrestling with that, and certainly in this period, and I think it it, it that didn't stop, but he became much better at, at at looking at the big picture and and helping people out. I think some of the things that really surprised me, um, I mean, one, when you read these letters, I, I'll give you a negative and a positive here, that, that uh, when you read these letters to Governor Dinwiddie that he wrote, and he wrote a lot of them, they are, I mean, they're really whiny. And you just don't think of George Washington as being whiny. I mean, that would be the last thing we'd think about. But they're just whiny. And you can see Governor Dinwiddie in his responses. You know, and he, when, I've saturated myself in this stuff. And so you can really read after a while, like between the lines. And, and I mean, Governor Dinwiddie, it's like you can see him rolling his eyes pretty clearly in these, in these letters. It's like, oh my god, here's another one, you know, from, from, you know, from George Washington. And then, but, uh, but he, you know, he grows out of that. He, he, he eventually, I mean, it doesn't happen right away over the long course. But then there's a, um, another, there's certain things that are quite endearing about him. And one, you know, he has this, this really kind of great athleticism, this physicality, and he's this great rider, and he's a strong guy, and he's, you know, he, he loves being out there. Um, at, at, I was at, speaking at Mount Vernon a while ago, and uh, somebody there quoted the former director of Mount Vernon as saying, well, people think George Washington is boring, but he's actually the greatest action hero figure of the 18th century, and, and he is. I mean, he, he's, he's an action guy. That's what he was about. And so he has this physicality, and he, one of the things that I found really endearing is that he liked to get down and play ball with his officers. You know, they throw around a ball or they kick around a ball. And you don't think of George Washington like playing ball, but he liked to do that. And, and he had that, you know, you, you hear about that he had a, you know, the legend about his throwing arm and, you know, he threw the, 
coin over, you hear it's the Potomac, which is no way, it's a mile wide. But it could have been the Rappahannock, which I measured on Google Earth, which he could have actually thrown across, you know, with a kind of a major league <laughs> pitcher throw. Um, but he, uh, so he, he had this great throwing arm, and there's this really great story about he was, uh, at some point, his young officers were playing this game, and they called it heaving the bar, which is like throwing a shot put. You know, it's a big heavy metal bar, and you see how far you could throw it. And George happened to be strolling by, and you know, these young guys are heaving as far as they can. And he said, you know, and he's, by this time, he's in his 40s or whatever, and he walks by, and he said, well, let me have a crack at that. And he takes a bar, and he's way farther than any of them, they, them could. And so there's this, um, that part of him I find quite endearing. To what would you attribute the recent sense of iconoclasm on the founding fathers, uh, you know, breaking the myths? Uh, we just heard a few months ago from uh, Rick Atkinson, who uh, was, you know, trying to devastate the myths that arose uh, around the founding fathers. Would you, uh, do you have any insight on to what caused this in recent uh, decades here? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think we could all kick that around for some hours. But um, that I, I think it's partly just that, that, you know, that we had such a myth-making about these guys in the beginning. And George Washington, from, you know, the moment he died, he was being made into a, a, a god, a demigod, demigod even, before, even before he died. And so there's this sort of impermeable armor, armor that built up around these guys and that made them seem, I think, superhuman and remote. And that's one of the reasons that I think that we're, you know, we're hearing about Hamilton so, so much, and he was such a colorful and interesting character. But likewise, with, with, with George Washington, that it's, I think it's hard for us in this era where we're so closely in touch with people through communications. You know, in a way, we know each other both more intimately and more distantly, but we know a lot of people. And so we see these characters who are our founding father superheroes, these guys who are statues, you know, these icons, and they just don't seem real. And I think, I think these days, it's, they, it's like they kind of strain our credibility. And so I think it's kind of a counter, it's a corrective measure in some ways, a countermeasure, I should say. And that I think, as I was saying in the beginning, I mean, this, this more uh, vulnerable, flawed George, George Washington, it, it, for me, is a more inspiring character. Because you know, to get from where he did from where he started, that's a long way. I mean, if, you know, if he started out as a great leader, he, didn't, you know, he went farther as a great leader. But he started out as this guy who really had to figure it out. And so I think that's, that's for me, that's the inspiring story. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events. <laughs>